I'd like you to take a Bible this morning. Let's open it together to the very last chapter in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we have a copy of the Bible that we'd like to let you borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 213 of our copy of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 31 in your copy of the Bible. And we're going to continue in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. Now, when I was going through seminary, I wasn't even married yet. Uh, the way that I paid my bills is that I worked as a cashier at Giant Food here in the area. And uh, at first, when I went to work there, the, uh, the, um, uh, my boss, who was the assistant manager, he and I got along all right. But as time went on, things deteriorated in our relationship. And before too very long, we were not getting along at all. As a matter of fact, this guy just hammered me. I mean, every chance he got the chance, the opportunity, he just hammered me. Just one example, you know, uh, they would post a schedule of the hours you're supposed to work each week. And if you wanted a particular time off the next week, you would just jot it on that week's schedule. And when he would sit down to make up the next week's schedule, he would try to accommodate you. So, for example, if I would write that I wanted off next Saturday from 5 to 10 p.m. to go to a movie or go to a sporting event, when the schedule would come out for the next week, if I had written I wanted off 5 to 10, he would have me scheduled from 5 to 10. Every time. He did it on purpose. And I knew he did it on purpose. And that was just one small part of... Of how our relationship was going. Now, I figured out a way to get around that. I decided if I wanted from 5 to 10 off, I would write down I wanted from 9 to 5 off. He would schedule me from 9 to 5, and I'd have from 5 to 10 off. So I figured out how to get around that. But, but the whole relationship just deteriorated. And I went to him a number of times, and I said to him, what have I done? I mean, did I do anything wrong? I mean, have I done something to make you mad? Uh, you know, what is it? Why are you like this with me? And he just would say to me, you haven't done anything. I just don't like you. Get out of my face. And I even went to the manager of the store and I said, look, you know, we're not getting along. Can you find out for me what I've done? Because I'd like to make it right and I'll try to make it right. He tried and he couldn't find out. That went on for all three years that I worked there. And when I left... As his little parting gesture to me, he gave me a totally unsatisfactory fitness report and put it in my file so it would be there whenever anybody looked in there. He really gave me a terrible write-up. That was like his parting gift as I left. Now, as a Christian, how do you handle somebody like that? As a Christian, how do you deal with somebody who just keeps coming at you and coming at you and coming at you? And no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to get them off your, tra your trail. Well, that's exactly the situation that David faced, didn't he? With, with, with Saul. And we're going to look today and see God bring this part of David's life, this chapter of David's life, to an end. God's going to deal with Saul, and Saul disappears from the story after today. But there was a strategy that David used, a deliberate strategy that he used to deal with Saul, a guy that kept coming at him and coming at him and coming at him. And it's a strategy that still works today. It's a strategy you can use to deal with people who are doing that to you today. It's a strategy I use with my boss. 
And so we're going to talk about that. But first, let's look at the passage, okay? Right here at 1 Samuel 31, a little bit of background. There's a huge battle that's shaping up between the Philistines and the armies of Israel under Saul. And by God's divine intervention, God has stepped in and taken David and his men and moved them right out of the situation. They've been sent home miles and miles away to a little town called Ziklag. And when the battle happens, David and his men aren't even anywhere around. Now watch, verse 1. The Philistines fought hard against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain, many Israelites did, on Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is up in the north of Israel, just south of the Sea of Galilee. And the Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. And the fight grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and they will run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer all died together on the same day. Now, the Bible tells us that Saul was critically wounded by an arrow, and he knew he was going to be taken captive, and this bothered him. Because, friends, the Philistines had a well-deserved reputation for cruelty towards the people they captured. If you remember what they did to Samson, do you remember? Judges chapter 16, when they finally got a hold of Samson, they gouged both of his eyes out, they shackled him, and then they tied him up to, to a threshing machine in a threshing floor, him on one side and an ox on the other side, and blind with both eyes gouged out, in chains they made him and the ox turn this thing for hours at a time, crushing grain in this hot threshing floor. Hey, Saul did not want to fall into these people's hands. So he asked his armor-bearer to please carry out a mercy killing. And when his armor-bearer refused to carry out a mercy killing, and since Dr. Kevorkian was unavailable at the time, Saul just did it to himself. He fell on his sword and he did it to himself. Well, what happened? Look at verse 8. The next morning, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. The scene that greeted the Philistines the following morning must have been an incredibly gruesome scene. Dead bodies by the thousands laying around, swollen, bloated, rigid as steel, having laid out all night and into the morning sun. And as they're going around stripping all the weapons and all the valuables of the de- off of these dead people, they discover a prize beyond their wild expectations, they find King Saul and all three of his sons dead there on the mountain. What did they do with their lifeless bodies? Well, verse 9 says, they cut off Saul's head and they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers everywhere proclaiming their victory. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of their female god at the Ashtoreth. And they fastened his body, they nailed his headless body to the wall of a nearby city, the city of Betshan. You say, Lon, I got some questions. Okay, what are they? Number one, why did they cut off Saul's head? Well, the answer is because this is exactly what David did to their hero, Goliath. And so I think there's a little tit for tat going on here. 
You say, well, I got another question. Why did they take his armor and put it on display in the temple of their, uh, their goddess? Well, if you remember, the answer is that if you remember, David did the exact same thing to Goliath. He took Goliath's armor and he gave it to Ahimelech, the high priest, and they put it on display in the tabernacle of God. You say, well, I got one more question. Why did they take his headless body and tack it up to the wall of the city Betshan? The answer is because they felt like it. I mean, I don't know why they felt like doing it. Who knows why they did it? They wanted to do it. Now, it's interesting that if you go to Israel today, there is a wonderful archaeological excavation at the city of Betshan. And when the archaeologists found this city, they found it just south of the Sea of Galilee, right next to Mount Gilboa, exactly where the Bible says it should be. And when they unearthed the city, they found that at the time of Saul, the city was surrounded by a massive city wall, just exactly the way the Bible describes it. Let me tell you something else interesting. They also found when they unearthed the city, you remember 1 Samuel 31 here says that they took Saul's armor and they put it on display in the temple of their female goddess. Well, if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it tells us that they took Saul's head and they put it on display in the temple of Dagon, their male god. And when the archaeologists unearthed the city of Betshan, they found two temples there from the time of the Philistines. One, a temple to a female deity, and another one, a temple to a male deity. And they believe, the archaeologists do, that these are the very two temples the Bible's talking about. The female deity's temple, where his armor went on display, and the male deity's temple, where his head went on display. Just exactly the way the Bible tells us. Very interesting that the more we dig out of the ground, the more the Bible proves to be right. Maybe you're here today and you've had trouble coming to the place where you can make a decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, where you can trust what he did for you on the cross as your only pathway into heaven. Maybe you've had trouble coming to that point because secretly you've really had doubts about the Bible. You've really had doubts about whether the Bible is as trustworthy and as reliable as people seem to tell you it is, and whether you can really base your whole eternal destiny on what the Bible tells you about Jesus Christ and what He did for you. Friends, I'm here to tell you that the Bible has withstood every test ever thrown against it when it comes to its accuracy and its trustworthiness. We have never found one single archaeological discovery that has contradicted a single thing the Bible says. And yet we have found hundreds and hundreds of archaeological facts that confirm that the Bible is totally accurate. There's a wonderful story that's told about Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey was a professor at Oxford University in the late 19th century. He was a professor of classical archaeology and classical languages, Greek and Latin. And he had these students who kept bugging him and trying to convince him to become a Christian. And so one year when he had a sabbatical coming, he said, I'm going to fix these students once and for all. And he took his sabbatical and he went to Turkey and to Greece and he took the Bible and he said, I'm going to take the Bible, the book of Acts, and I'm going to trace the journeys that the the book of Acts tells me the Apostle Paul went on to each of these cities. And I'm going to find so much inaccuracy and so many mistakes in the Bible's account of Paul's journeys that I'm going to be able to come back and get tell these students, you get off my back and I'm going to be able to show them the evidence and they'll leave me alone. 
So he went. Do you know that before he was done, he became so completely convinced that the Bible was right that he gave his life to Jesus Christ while he was in the process of taking his sabbatical and he actually became one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Folks, the Bible stands the test. And if you're here and you've had doubts about the Bible, let me tell you, we have a God who is so mighty and so all-powerful, He can write a book and He can get it correct. And He's done it. And you can trust the Word of God, and I hope you'll think about that. Well, let's go on. Let's finish the story. Verse 11. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, Jabesh-Gilead is a little tiny town just a couple miles away, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons off the wall of Bethshan, and they went back to Jabesh Gilead where they burned them. And then they took their bones and they gave them a decent burial there at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Now, why did these men risk their lives to do this? Because if you read in 1 Samuel 11, you will find that 40 years earlier, in his first military exploit as king, Saul had saved their city from certain destruction by a band of Ammonites who had surrounded their city. And so this was their way of returning the kindness as best they could. They got the man's body and the body of his three sons, and they gave it a decent burial. And so here ends the life and the career of King Saul. Suddenly the door is wide open now for David to ascend the throne exactly the way God told him. And here, after seven years of running for his life, after seven years of being falsely accused of treason by Saul, after seven years of being unfairly branded as a public outlaw by Saul, after seven years of hiding in caves and living on the run like a common criminal, after seven years of having a price on his head, dead or alive, after seven years, during which time he had the chance to kill Saul twice and didn't do it, after seven years of that kind of treatment by Saul, all of a sudden, swiftly, decisively, God acted and Saul was gone. And the neatest part about it all is that no one could ever point a finger at David and say David had anything to do with it. David wasn't even here. He wasn't even in the battle. He was miles and miles away. And his men weren't even participating. Nobody could ever point a finger at him and say, you had something to do with getting rid of Saul. He didn't have anything to do with it. God did it. And he did it in a way that preserved David's integrity and kept David's hands clean and unsoiled in the process. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask an important question. And you know what the question is. What's that question? You've been waiting the whole sermon for that, haven't you? That's wonderful. So what? Lon, you say, Lon, that's wonderful. We're really glad for David. Frankly, we didn't like Saul anyway, so, you know, kind of good riddance. But, But this doesn't have anything to do with our lives here in the 20th century, really, does it? Well, I think it has an enormous amount to do with our lives. You know, I'll bet there are some of you here who have a Saul in your life. I'll bet there are some of you here who right now has, you have somebody in your life who just keeps coming at you and coming at you and coming at you. And no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you just cannot get them off your trail. You've tried to make things right. You've tried to do things right. But man, they are determined to hammer you. 
Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a relative or a neighbor, maybe it's a fellow student at school. Who knows? But, you, but no matter how hard you've tried, you cannot seem to bring peace to that situation. So here's the question as Christians. How do we respond to this kind of treatment in a way that preserves our integrity, in a way that keeps our conscience clean, that keeps our hands clean of wrongdoing, And how do we respond in a way that allows no one later on to accuse us, point the finger at us, and accuse us of cheap retaliation, of cheap revenge, and at the same time, bring some righteousness and some vindication to the situation? How do we do it? Well, we do it by following the very same same strategy that David did. David had a strategy how he was going to deal with Saul. It was a deliberate biblical strategy that David employed. And I want to show you that strategy this morning because it'll work today. You can use it in your life and God will honor it and God will bless it and God will come out big for you just like he did for David. It's a strategy that's based around trusting God to vindicate us instead of doing it ourselves. Now, vindication is not a word that we use very often in our everyday talk. So let's define the word. What does vindication mean? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary. Vindication means to clear someone from suspicion, from dishonor, and from false accusations. To restore a person's good reputation that was falsely damaged. Now, that's vindication. And there are three basic steps, three basic building blocks to vindication. To how to do this. David followed all three. Let me give them to you. You ready? Write them down. Number one, when you're trusting God to vindicate you, step number one is that you refuse to defend yourself. You refuse to go on a personal crusade to right all the wrongs that have been done to you in your own energy, in your own wisdom, in your own strength. You refuse to take matters in your own hand. You refuse to get into a mudslinging contest. You refuse to trade tit for tat. You just simply refuse to try to vindicate yourself. The second step when you're trusting God to vindicate you, is that instead of doing it yourself, you actively rely on God to be your vindicator, to be your protector, to be your defender. You decide to take the high road. You decide to leave that person who is slandering you or those people who are slandering you falsely. You decide to leave them in the hands of God. For God to restore your reputation and for God to clear your name for, without your help. And you leave the wrong that they're doing to you in God's hand for God to reverse it and make it right all by himself. And the third step is that you're prepared to wait on God to do this in his own perfect timing and in his own perfect way. You don't tell God how to do it. You don't tell God when to do it. You don't dictate how it ought to happen. You just say, God, they're yours. What they're doing to me is yours. You deal with it any way you want, and at any time you want, God, my hands are off. I'm not going to lift a finger to vindicate myself. You do it. Now, did David follow that pattern? Was that his strategy with Saul? You bet it was. Flip back with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26. Here, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. It's the second opportunity he has to kill him. Saul's lying fast asleep right at David's feet. 
And I want you to see what David says. First Samuel chapter 26, look at verse 9. David said to Abishai, who was with Saul, uh, who was with him rather, he said, now don't destroy Saul. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike Saul. Either his time will come and he'll die of natural causes, or Saul will go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And in chapter 24, David had said to Saul, Saul, I'm trusting God. He's going to vindicate me. I'm not going to do a thing. Now look at the three steps and see if David didn't indeed follow them. The first step was that you refuse to take matters in your own hand and vindicate yourself. What did David say? David said, the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on Saul. I'm not lifting one finger to make myself right or to vindicate myself. I'm not doing it. The second step is that we rely on God to be our deliverer. And what did David say here? He said, may the Lord consider my cause and uphold it. May the Lord vindicate me. I'm not going to do it. And the third step is that you're willing to wait on God's perfect timing and God's perfect way. What did David say here? He said, the Lord will either strike Saul, either his time will come and he'll die of natural causes, or he'll go into battle and he'll die in battle. But however God chooses to do it, whenever God chooses to do it, I'm going to wait on God until God moves on Saul. I'm not doing a thing. Did God honor that in David's life? You bet he did. He honored it for David right here in 1 Samuel 31. Saul dies on the battlefield. David has nothing to do with it. He honored it in David's life and, and vindicated David in a way that preserved David's integrity, in a way that kept David's conscience clear, in a way that kept David's hands clean, and in a way that allowed David to assume the kingship of Israel, as we're going to see, with an unstained reputation, with no skeletons in the closet, and allowed David to pull Israel together and unify Israel in a way he could never have done if he would have been the one who lifted his hand and took Saul's life. It never could have, he never would have been able to lead Israel from this point on the way he was with letting God do it. Friends, when I look through the Bible, I find that every great man and woman of God who's ever been vilified unfairly, who's ever been mistreated unjustly, I find that every single man and woman of God has learned to live this strategy and God has come out strong for them. How about Joseph? You remember he was falsely accused of trying to have an affair with Potiphar's wife and they threw him in jail? Did he take any steps to, to, to vindicate himself? No. He simply left it in God's hands. And what did God do? Well, before it was over, he was the prime minister of Egypt and he was Potiphar's boss. And then there was Moses, who out in the wilderness, Mary and his sister came and challenged him and said, you shouldn't be the leader anymore. I think I want to be the leader. Moses, what did he do? He said, well, okay, if God wants you to be the leader, fine with me. And if God doesn't want you to be the leader, God will deal with you. I'm not going to vindicate my leadership. God will deal with this. Did God deal with this? Friend, let me tell you something. If he hadn't prayed for her, God would have struck her dead on the spot. God dealt with that. And then there was old Mordecai. Man, was Haman out to get him or what? And what did Mordecai do? Mordecai just said, well, I'm going to leave Haman in God's hands. I'm not going to vindicate myself. God, you deal with Haman. And before that day was over, the Bible says Haman was hanging on the gallow that he built for Mordecai. 
And then there was Daniel, who was, unfa- who was unfairly accused of treason and thrown in the lion's den. What did he say to the king? He said, King, I'm innocent. But you go ahead and throw me in the lion's den and we'll see if I need to be vindicated, God will vindicate me. Did God come out strong for him? You bet he did. And how about the Lord Jesus Christ? I love what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When they made him suffer, he didn't make any threats. Instead, listen, he kept on entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. He said, hey, if I need to be vindicated, God will vindicate me. Did God vindicate Jesus Christ? Well, I would call rising from the dead vindication, wouldn't you? I mean, people don't do that every day. I'd say that's vindication pretty good. I love what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Pursuit of God. He said, whoever defends himself will have himself as his defense, and he will have none other. But let a Christian come defenseless before the Lord, and that person will have as their defender no less than the living God himself. What a wonderful truth. And it's a powerful truth. Folks, I tell you, I have had to live this truth. I have had to live this strategy. And I have learned, because I've seen God do it, that God is powerful enough. God is mighty enough. God is sovereign enough. God is in control enough that He can defend you and me all by Himself without your help. He can vindicate you and me all by Himself without your help. And it's much better. He does a better job than you would do anyway. And he does it in a fashion that keeps your hands clean, keeps your integrity spotless. I tell you, it's the way to do it. You say, well, Lon, you convinced me. I'm going to go out today and I'm going to name all those people who are being nasty to me. And I'm going to pray for God to vindicate me. Well, that's good. But you know, friends, wait a minute. There's a couple of conditions you got to meet before this works. You go, oh, shoot, man. I knew there was some catch to this. Well, there is. There's three conditions that you have to meet if you want God to vindicate you. Let me give them to you real quickly. The first one's found in Psalm 26. Would you turn there with me? Psalm 26. It's page 393 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Psalm 26. Look here with me. David prays Psalm 26, verse 1. Look what he says. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord. Now, some of us want to go out here and pray that. That's wonderful. Vindicate me, O Lord. Clear my name. Deal with that person. For I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I didn't cause this. So you vindicate me. But look what he prays in verse 2. Test me, O Lord, and try me, and examine my heart and my mind. That's interesting that he connected those two up, isn't it? See, the first condition you and I have to meet for God to vindicate us is we have to be genuinely innocent of wrongdoing. Was David innocent of treason against Saul? Yes. Was David innocent of any disloyalty against Saul? Yes. Was David innocent of any political intrigue or plotting or subversion against Saul? Yes. That's why he could pray, God, vindicate me, and why God stepped up to the plate and did it. 
But friends, that is an important uh, first step to go through. David prays here, God vindicate me. I think I'm blameless, verse 1. But verse 2, you know, Lord, it's easy for me to pull the wool over my own eyes. So examine my heart, test my heart, and make sure I'm really innocent. This is the hardest part about vindication. This is the hardest part about satisfying the conditions. The problem is, uh, Proverbs 16, 2 says, Every man's right um, way rather seems right in his own eyes. All of us think we're right. All of us think we're innocent. All of us think... What did I do? I didn't do anything. Every time I get in my children's face, they're like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I'm completely innocent. What are you talking to me for? And we have to ease them through the process of helping them understand why I'm in their face, that they're not innocent. We're all like that. And you see, my friends, the first thing that we need to do when we've got somebody coming at us is not get on our knees and pray, oh, God, vindicate me. No, no, too soon for that. The first thing we have to do is examine our lives and see, hey, am I part of the cause for this? Did I say something, do something that caused them to do the treat me like this? Did I hurt their feelings? Did I offend them? Is there a reason why they're treating me like this? That I need to go and confess to them? That I need to go ask their forgiveness? That I need to go make things right? You're not ready to pray for God to vindicate you till you've been through those previous steps and made sure there's not a single thing that you have done to cause this. It's only after you're absolutely sure that you're blameless that you can get on your knees and pray, okay, God, now it's time for you to vindicate me. The second condition that we have to meet is that we have to take our hands off the situation and give it totally to God. See, what we like to do when we're, when we want, when, when we're dealing with somebody like this is we like in our minds and in our hearts and in our attitudes to choke them for a while. Oh, no, 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 no. And then we give them to God. We say, okay, now you take them. And then after a while, we want them back. And And then we're like, okay, God, take them again. And then in a little while, it's like, all right, I feel like choking them some more. Take them back, God. No, 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 you can't do that. That isn't what David did. David completely took his hands off of them. David completely released them into the hands of God. And you know what we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 1? David wept when he heard that Saul died. He didn't hate this man. He had so completely released this man into the hands of God that he had no bitterness, no anger, no hatred. It was a non-issue. David had turned loose of this guy. He was in God's hands. If you want God to vindicate you, my friend, you've got to make it totally a God thing. You've got to release that person that's mistreating you. And you've got to release that mistreatment into the hands of God. And you've got to leave it there. And the third and final condition we have to meet is we have to be patient. We have to be patient. Vindication from God never, 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 never happens as fast as you want it to happen. You know why? Because we want to be praying about it and at that very moment have lightning, kapusha, fall from heaven and just burn them up. That's the timing we want. No, no, no. God doesn't do it like that, friends. No way. God many times takes His sweet time. For David, it took seven years of running away from Saul. For Joseph, it took 13 years in prison. For, for, for Mordecai, it was months and months and months of putting up with Haman. 
And the reason God often takes His sweet time is because while He's taking His sweet time, He's working on our character in the meantime. Because a lot of times, you know, there's things that kind of come up that need to be worked on in us. And God takes His time. But let me tell you this, when God's time is ripe, and boy, have I seen this, when God's time is ripe, God moves with such swiftness and such decisiveness to deal with the situation, it is scary. I mean, think about it. Haman, the day began, he's the prime minister of Persia. Before the day's over, boom, he's hanging from the gallows he built for Mordecai. Joseph wakes up in jail one day, just another ordinary day in jail. Before the day's over, wham, he's the prime minister of Egypt. Think about it now. Saul goes out this day, and he's the king of Israel. And before the day is over, he's gone. Man, when God moves, God moves quick. And God moves decisively. But you've got to be willing to wait for God's time and God's way. And that's the problem with so many of us when we're trusting God to vindicate us. We run out of patience and we grab it back and want to deal with it ourselves. You can't do that. When you give it to God, you've got to wait. And believe me, God will take care of it. And he'll do it better than you could do it anyway. But you've got to let God do it in his time. And you've got to let God do it in his way. If you've got a Saul coming after you, let me tell you what to do with him. You do with him exactly what David did with him. Number one, you refuse to take it in your own hands and try to vindicate yourself. If you know you're innocent, you've been through the process, you're sure you haven't done anything wrong, just take your hands off of it. You give them to God, give what they're doing to you to God, and you just sit back and go on with your life, and you know, by the time it's all over, God will take care of it. He will. He took care of it for Joseph. He took care of it for Moses. He took care of it for Mordecai. He took care of it for David, and he'll take care of it for you. Let's pray together, shall we? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment of of quiet prayer time. And if you have a Saul in your life, and you're willing today to meet these conditions we've talked about, and turn them over to God, and trust God to vindicate you, stop trying to do it yourself. I want to give you just a moment of silence where you can make that transfer right here this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for being so practical in terms of the Word of God helping us with everyday problems and struggles that we have. Because there are many, many of us who know exactly what it's like to have a Saul on our trail. And I want to thank you for giving us a strategy to deal with them as Christians. A strategy whereby we can keep our integrity pure. We can keep our reputations unspotted. We can keep our hands clean. And at the same time, we can be assured that righteousness will be served and that truth will triumph. It's all about trusting you, handing them over to you to do the vindicating. And thank you that you are a God who is so powerful, a God who is so sovereign, a God who is so in control of this world, 
that you can handle the job of vindicating us without us raising one finger to help you. Father, for many of us here today, make this a day of sweet freedom. As we release these people and as we release what they're saying about us and what they're doing to us into the hands of God. And we're free. Make us free, God. So that we can go on and serve you unshackled. And thank you that we know you will see to it that righteousness is served. And you'll do it in your own way and your own time. And when it happens, nobody will ever be able to say that we lowered ourselves to retaliate against these people in an ungodly way. So, Lord, provide that sense of hope to our lives. And thank you for giving us a strategy that is powerful in our everyday living. Thank you we were here today. Change our lives by what we heard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.